Hi, everyone. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm joined by three friends to discuss the polymyalgia rheumatica giant cell arteritis um, happenings at UR 2020. I'm joined by Dr. David Liu from Melbourne Health, I'm sorry, Austin Health in Melbourne, Sarah Mackey at Leeds in the UK, and Len Calabrese at the Cleveland Clinic. Good afternoon, good morning, good night. We're in so many different time zones here. <laughs> it is the way of the world. So we're going to discuss the, some happenings on uh, the PMRGCA front. David, why don't you take the lead and introduce our first abstract? Absolutely. Well, um, there have been some really exciting abstracts, I think, at this EULA um, that have challenged the way that we think. Um, I think in particular, one of the things that has, I think all of us would uh, nominate as something which we've been looking forward to seeing is extension data from um, GIACTA. GIACTA, of course, being um, the key um, registration trial for tocilizumab and giant cell arteritis. And what we saw at this conference was um, that some of the data that's come out um, from subgroup analyses or from the extension data. So in fact, uh, going out to three years now. Um, so the, one of the, the key bits was that three-year data, which was presented by John Stone uh, from MassGen, um, or, uh, that's OP0027, um, with data looking at um, steroid, um, steroid utilization and flare rate um, in the different groups of JACTA. So that's a weekly, the um, every two weeks, and then the placebo group. Um, from that study. Uh, I mean, I'd be curious to know, um, to, to get some thoughts from the group about that. It's such an important uh, um, study for our use of tocilizumab in um, giant cell arteritis. Sarah, what do you think about that? Well, I think this three-year data is really, really exciting. Um, it's, in a way, even more exciting than the one-year data, which resulted in the licensing of tocilizumab, because it starts to answer the question whether good control of inflammation in the first year of treatment for giant cell arteritis matters for long-term outcomes. And additionally, there's the relapsing subgroup. So if you then have one year of really good control of inflammation, does that then cause better long-term control? On the, so they did an intention to treat analysis and they looked at um, the percentage of patients remaining flare-free through the whole years two and three of the study by their original treatment allocation. And they also looked at the median time to flare. Um, and um, it, it was really, really impressive that the patients who were originally allocated weekly tocilizumab um, had a much greater chance of remaining flare three throughout years two and three compared to those who were allocated um, placebo. And then the two weekly tocilizumab was somewhere in the middle. So um, this is absolutely it fascinating because we've for a long time in inflammatory arthritis we've had discussions about window of opportunity about the importance of tight control um, but until now we haven't really had that kind of data in giant cell arteritis that good control of inflammation actually then has long-term benefits. So Lenny what do you think about the uh, the, the GIACTA and especially the long-term data is it enough to uh, change the habits and practices of rheumatologists it's been slow on the uptake and actual use um, you know, I, I consider it a standard of care, and, uh, uh, you know, I think that uh, we'll talk about steroid toxicity in a bit, um, but I, I was impressed uh, that we've learned or reaffirmed uh, this is a chronic disease. It's not going away, and uh, the, the other thing that I would say, uh, the, the Sarah, I I would say that the, that the every other week is not in the middle. It's pretty darn close to the yeah, 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 yeah. weekly. And uh, 
I've been using a lot of every other week, uh, you know, trying to risk mitigate. And, uh, you know, I don't think we have the final answer right now on, you know, how many people we can control. But I'm in for the long run. And if I can get away with every other week, I'm very happy to do it. David, what about you in weekly versus every other week? Well, I think that the relapse data from this extension um, in, in that three extension really has started to make me think maybe I should be thinking about week, um, on weekly um, for my patients. Uh, in Australia, we get one year in total of weekly um, dosing, so we get 52 doses. Um, and it's made, we, I've often thought about, um, well, for some of my patients have been spreading them out, trying to do it every two weekly, thinking about that data. But I think this has made me think a little bit more about that and also has made me think a bit, bit about um, uh, you know, whether we, we really should be advocating for more uh, tosismab access for our patients. Um, but ultimately, it's a steroid sparing benefit, and it's the benefits there early on. I mean, what would you say to that one? Yeah. Let me be clear. I, I, I start with weekly, and, and mm -hmm. I'm talking about the long run now, year two, mm -hmm. year three, and beyond. I think, uh, I think there's a case to be made that uh, we, we need to look um, – uh, more carefully at dose reduction in in that group, and I think it works pretty good. Cool. I mean, yeah. David, what about the abstract on PET CT? Does that make us smarter in our management of uh, GCA? Tell us about that. Yes, and I particularly like this because um, it really. Um, this is work from. Sorry. Uh, this is, uh, sorry, I think it's stored up there. This is um, work from uh, Peter Grayson at NIH or his group um, and uh, looking particularly at what happens after, um, throughout the course of tocilizumab therapy. So I think as, as Len was mentioning, uh, well, as, as Len talked about, there's ongoing tocilizumab therapy um, there. Um, they looked at 22 patients and they did, I think, what um, seems pretty remarkable to me in that they did a, a, a PET-CT at baseline and then every six, um, every six months after that, which I don't think we'd necessarily do for routine care, but we'd, it gives us an idea as to what the kind of um, FDG vascular uptake, how that trends over the course of time. I think we're starting to understand that more, and we've seen that in a few of the other abstracts, that that may well represent real disease activity. But what I think was interesting out of this was that they, they tracked it over two years, and we could keep on seeing that um, FDG uptake, um, the, that, um, that syntographic uptake representing inflammation. Um, in the vessel keep on dropping over the course of time. Um, and what's more, they look at, looked at some patients where they withdrew the tocilizumab and then they saw them flare as well. So, I mean, for me, that's quite a stunning um, finding to be able to see that there's benefit over two years. But this isn't the kind, I've always thought once again, um, maybe because of my paradigm in, in clinical practice, that um, a lot of that benefit comes from the first year. This is where we see the steroids bearing benefit. But it does seem that this is something that keeps on going and going and going. So is this just a research tool, Sarah, or is this something that has practicality? I guess it's whether it's going to change your clinical decisions at the time. Um, there is this disconnect between the systemic symptoms of giant cell arteritis, you know, the inflammatory markers of CRP and how patients feel, and then what's going on in the vessel wall. And without doing serial biopsies, really imaging is the only other way to monitor what's going on. Um, I think um, other people have used serial ultrasound, but clearly that only, you can only access limited number of vessels. With that, you can't get, get to the aorta to see whether there's kind of ongoing disease activity there. So 
think at present we're still finding our way as to how much vascular imaging monitoring is acquired in these patients. Um, but I think when you get to clinical decision points, imaging is often very helpful. Lenny, at the, at the clinic, you guys are the, you know, one of the worldwide leaders in vasculitis care. Does FDG pet fit into your use and assessment? Well, it sure fits into the diagnostic uh, algorithm. I mean, nobody does bilateral temporal artery biopsies anymore. And if you have access to it diagnostically, I think it's very sensitive and helpful. I think that to me, this uh, abstract uh, reaffirms, A, this is a chronic disease, it's not going away. But uh, as Sarah said, this, is this actually gonna change practice if you could do this? And you know, my, my knee-jerk response is that no, it wouldn't change my practice. Um, and the, the, the real question is, what is the end game? What, what, what would it look like you know, eight years uh, out? I suspect there'll still be low-grade inflammation there. And I think, this is, this is Len being crazy, um, that you know, this is going to uh, uh, kind of uh, anneal itself with chronic low-grade inflammation of aging. Um, uh, inflammation, and I don't think it's ever going to go away. And uh, I, you know, these events of aortic aneurysms and stenosis—they're really rare. Yeah, I mean, you know, this, this, and all of these people demonstrate this. So I, I, I find this uh, pathophysiologically fascinating, and leaves me in a quandary as to how it would work as a clinical tool. But it also uh, gives us great insight into inflammation and aging. Good. Let's move on to the abstract on, um, on PMR and what may be lying underneath that in the form of vasculitis. David. Absolutely. Well, this is one that um, I first heard talked about um, at, at the PMR GCA study group, but I think has real implications. So um, this is from a group um, in Bonn, uh, Valentin Scherfler's um, group in Bonn, who um, they, they took PMR patients, 50 consecutive PMR patients presenting to their clinic and, and really tried to address this question, um, what's this relationship between PMR and GCA? And where does it sit and how many of our PMR patients, well, we think um, eventually 20% of our PMR, about one fifth of our PMR patients might go on to develop clinical GCA. But where does that relationship start at the, at the beginning? Is it there all along? Are we, and we, we're not picking it up. Um, how does it develop? So they, um, they performed um, vascular ultrasound on all of um, their 50 um, patient, consecutive patients. So you know, we wouldn't think that beyond what's getting coming into that tertiary center that would necessarily be um, selection bias. Um, and what they saw was that um, 27 of those 50 had um, vascular uptake um, Outside of outside of limits, which would be consistent with um, giant arteritis. Um, of those 27, um, 17 had symptoms, which uh, which could be culpable, uh, which could be attributable to GCA, which does sound, sound high to me. But then another 10 had no GCA symptoms at all, but still had that uptake. So I'm not really sure what this means. Is this part of giant cell arteritis? Is this subclinical giant cell arteritis going on there? Does this become giant cell arteritis in the end or not? Um, I mean, I, I'm, I'm still uncertain where that relationship comes about and does it need a two hit to, you know, do PMI patients need that second hit to develop giant cell arteritis in the future or not? So Lenny, this is another more sensitive way of finding what we've always been told in the past that it could be there, but you don't necessarily treat it. Does this make you more inclined? There is nothing new under the sun. 
<laughs> this is the same question that's been asked for the past 50 years in this disease. And, uh, you know, I love Valentin. He's a very careful observer. And this just reaffirms everything that I've ever thought about this disease. So be careful what you ask for. Sarah. So, I mean, this is a question which I've been fascinated by since I st first started PMR and GCA and um, Colin Pease and I looked in our Leeds data set, um, looked at these patients who were originally diagnosed with polymyalgia rheumatica and then went on to develop giant cell arthritis later. And we were trying to work out, did they always have giant cell arthritis that was just hiding or did they actually then develop this, you know, like a two hit, this second disease. Um, and was there subclinical giant cell arthritis? And of course, at that time, we didn't do routine vascular imaging at diagnosis. And so we, we didn't know. We still don't know because in clinical practice, we don't necessarily do that. Um, but I mean, this does, would support the idea that at least in some, some patients, polymyalgia rheumatica patients do have a subclinical giant cell arthritis from the, from the beginning that, you can pick up if you look on ultrasound, and maybe these patients, would need, you would need the long-term follow-up data to know, but maybe these patients are the ones we should be watching really, really carefully to see if they then develop clinical giant cell arthritis requiring high-dose steroids. Um, and, and we should maybe be treating polymyalgia a lot more seriously as a pre-disease state, um, not as a you know, literally category all by itself that so can just go back to the, to the primary care physician. But actually these patients are high risk for developing giant cell arthritis and we should be taking this seriously. So this is a, in line with what Lenny was saying that this is a chronic disorder and, you know, we gotta, we gotta be in it for the long haul in, in our assessment of these people. Let's end up with the uh, aspect on PMR and steroids. David. Um, certainly, well, um, this is, yeah, it's industry initiated, but I think it, it has a really important uh, message. And I think it's been done reasonably well. Um, this looks at claims data, US claims data, um, in patients with a, um, it's with a diagnosis of PMR, um, and then looks beyond that at that first year, see um, what incident um, potentially steroid-related complications uh, accrued in that period of time. Um, so we're talking um, about substantive numbers of patients. Uh, we're talking about, um, I think it was, uh, it was over 12,000 patients, um, PMR patients, had um, very well-matched controls um, at that time, and then they looked to see what complications they developed. And you can see right across the board that they kept on accumulating more and more complications. Now, it's hard to know, is this disease, is this a steroid? It has a guess that it's more likely to be the steroid, but I can't say that for certain. But I think what's um, really telling is that I think people often dismiss the 15 milligrams of prednisolone that you might have for polymyalgia rheumatica um, as, as not harmful. Um, I think people perhaps maybe even undervalue PMR as a disease. Um, think of it um, as, as, as incidental or self-limiting. It's still a disease we don't have steroid sparing therapies for that have been proven in a phase three trial. And so we're, we're left in a situation where these patients are getting more hypertension, more diabetes, more infections, more cardiovascular disease, more um, skin toxicity and, and neuropsychiatric disease, um, ocular disease, renal problems, things that we wouldn't, um, that might easily um, get forgotten in terms of thinking about PMI as a real disease. So this is the age old question in managing, especially PMR, you know, how can we minimize or avoid steroids? Does, is, are we going to get to the point where we could use, to, we should be using tocilizumab in PMR or the, the, the C5A inhibitor, uh, avocopan, that was for the uh, ANC-associated vasculitis? Where should, should we hold tight to steroids or should we be looking to the future and substitutes? 
Sarah. So I think we desperately need some good trials of steroid sparing agents for polymyalgia or rheumatica. This is not a benign disease. So for the patients that can get off steroids quickly and without complications, that's absolutely fine. But there's a substantial, so it's not even a minority, who require two or more years of systemic steroids and they accumulate the most awful panoply of side effects, some of them. And we just have no decent evidence as to what we should be giving these patients to help mitigate that. And we should be going in much earlier, I think, and thinking about um, what to give them. But it's, I think it's been challenging to get these trials funded. It's been challenging to get these trials designed because the, um, historically they have um, the classification criteria for polymyodramatica. There were lots of different sets and it was confusing. Um, and also some criteria for relapse and remission uh, needed definition. But all these things are being worked on now. And I think um, this just really underlines the need for a, a, a decent trial of something that can help our patients with polymyodramatica. Yeah. Lynn, what's your perspective on this? Prednisone is poison. And, uh, <laughs> you need, know, uh, many years ago, I came I up with... I didn't say that. I, it's not my quote, as you know. Uh, but... Uh, but many years ago, I came up with a, a trial, a greatest acronym I, I've come up with yet, called the PRADA trial, polymyalgia rheumatica and adalimumab. And, and, you know, we ran it around. It was obviously the companies loved it. But, you know, the old guard, you know, Harry Spiron, a lot of the guys that are the PMR guys, they were like, what are you out of your mind? You're going to use a million dollar drug when you can spend 12 cents on prednisone? We still, this is what we're up against. <laughs> it sounds like that. No, I, I agree. But I mean, there's been some great advances now in steroid sparing. You mentioned Avacapan and um, actually uh, uh, AbbVie has a, a bi-specific antibody with uh, adalimumab and an intracellular steroid um, uh, antagonist that anneals to the same cell. I mean, yeah, these are expensive bioengineered drugs, but you know, I guarantee you that, you know, five years from now, we're going to be doing something a lot different in this area. We got to keep pushing. I'm, I'm so excited about the Evacuant day. I think that's, you know, just a, a total game changer it's going to be. And uh, it gives us, no one would have dreamed of that, you know, a decade ago. So. Yeah. David, why don't you just briefly go over that data? Because it was a highlight from the meeting. Absolutely. I mean, in my mind, it was probably the, the highlight of the meeting. Um, so that's a Vacapan um, in that phase three trial also got presented at the uh, European uh, Renal Meeting as well on Sunday um, by David Jane. But um, Peter Merkel presented the data looking um, at um, patients with anchor-associated vasculitis who were getting either rituximab or cyclophosphamide and compared in a double-blinded randomized control trial way um, steroid versus a Vacapan. And the outcomes are fairly stunning. Um, we saw that there was non-inferiority at 26 weeks. Um, the patients went on had superiority at 52 weeks. Um, better renal outcomes, obviously less steroid toxicity. Uh, I mean, this is going to be a, a great. A, a, this is a great new advance, and I mean, to be able to have the chance to, to use this will be fantastic. But unfortunately, it's going to come at a price. Right? <laughs> that's the that's the big worry, right? Anyway, this is, is really stimulating. I want to thank uh, all of you for taking the time out to discuss these important abstracts. Um, there'll be more on you, Laura, to come, I, I assume. So good day, everyone. Thank Thanks you. so much. Thanks. Stay safe.